Don't you love it? Don't you hate it? People suspend their lives to watch other people's lives. It's a curious activity that millions of people enjoy. The rationale and the titles of these programs have become sort of common currency in everyday life. You see them in headlines and newspapers and all kinds of places. I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here. I'm a preacher. Get me out of here. <laughs> Big Brother's back. Wouldn't you love to put about eight preachers away for nine weeks under the cameras? Wouldn't it reveal whether Christianity is real or not? The Osbournes. What can you say? You just count the bleeps. Reality Bites. Have you seen that one? Something to do with the kitchen and the conversation. I don't know what's going on. Teams sent to islands to eat maggots. We love it. We really are strange people. Celebrities sent with cameras attached to their chest or head or something to a desert island to live. And we sit there and watch this. I don't know if it's here yet, but it's coming. There's a new American one. There's a number of new American ones. Monica Lewinsky is heading up. You remember her? Something to do with Bill Clinton, but I can't remember what. The new American one, her program is called Mr. Personality. It's about men in masks, which might be an improvement <laughs> in terms of uh, some of us. But the one I wanted to point out to you, and perhaps uh, you maybe want to avoid this, it's called Cheaters. Has anyone seen it? It's an American program. And uh, believe it or not, it's based on a, a camera team burst into people's bedrooms to see them cheating with another man's wife or husband. It catches them in the act. Millions of people are watching this and it's coming this way. That's quite appropriate for this passage, really, isn't it? Caught in the act. There's something quite fascinating about watching other people, isn't there? My wife often tells me not to stare at people with my mouth open in restaurants. As I look at them and I, I think, why are they here? Why did they choose that meal and not another meal? What kind of work do they do? Are they married? Is that their girlfriend? Who is that? What kind of car will they drive when they leave the restaurant? What kind of home do they live in? See, I live a very sad life. And I don't, I don't go out a lot. But those unguarded moments in a person's life, you know, as we watch these programs or we're fascinated by relationships, we're asking ourselves, will A fall out with B? Will X go to bed with Y? Will that irritating guy get his comeuppance quickly? Will that nauseating woman be voted off? And so we're 
evaluating relationships in all kinds of ways. Of course, dealing with people in relationship is very much part of our everyday life. How we do that relationship, be it at home or work or university or church, the need to deal with people, it lies at the heart of our intellectual, our spiritual, our social development. And how we relate to all kinds of people. It's fashionable in, in many business circles. Many of you will have been involved in this to be sent off to conferences and to, to uh, training days to improve your people skills, to improve how you deal with employees or how you deal with unions or how you deal with all kinds of people situations. It's extraordinary how many people you meet in very high positions in society who haven't got the slightest idea about people's skills. And certainly in church life, how we deal with people can make all the difference in the world. It's all part of leadership. It's all part of congregational relationships. It's all part of our evangelistic conversations with people. It's all part of pastoral situations. I think the problem is, among us, most of us, is that we feel it's an instinct. We feel we're born with the skills that are needed to deal with people correctly. There's something within us, we think, well, it's quite natural. I don't need to really look at this or examine this or think about this. And I'm not sure that's right. I don't know if I've got an instinct for people's skills. It seems to me it's a much better and safer role to travel to say that to learn to deal with people correctly, you have to learn it. Therefore, you have to be taught it. Therefore, I ask the question, what has the Bible got to say about how we deal with people situations, how we deal with each other? And I believe what we read tonight in chapter 8 has a lot to do with dealing with people the Jesus way. How does Jesus deal with the people in this very short story? I want you to keep in mind as we examine how he does this, uh, a phrase or a, an expression of uh, G.K. Chesterton. He was once asked why he had become a Christian. And he answered rather tersely, he said, to get rid of my sins. This is a story about a woman who needs to get rid of her sins. The story's got interwoven themes. And I'm going to briefly jump on four of them. The first one, it has the theme of formal religion. She has been caught in the act of adultery by a group of religious zealots, by the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And as the event unfolds in the story here, that religion is profiled. I've simply given some key words to it to guide my thoughts through it. As it unfolds, the religion appears to me to be, number one, judgmental. She got caught committing adultery. And therefore, she must die by stoning. End of story. Full stop. What a great religion. 
It seems to me that this kind of religion is a religion without heart. All that matters is law and not grace that we were singing of. All that matters is reputation of that religious system rather than redemption, rather than freedom, rather than forgiveness. All that matters seems to be what happens on the outside, not what happens on the inside of that one life. All that matters is being seen in the community as keeping up the standards of your religion, never mind about the people. As long as we don't compromise our reputation. Second key word, I think, is provocative. She got caught at a good time for them. Never mind about her. This was excellent stuff. She had been caught quite recently. Jesus was around and they wanted to bring the two together to test him. They want to use her to trap Jesus. A kind of religion that uses people. Quite simply, the woman is a test case. Nothing more, nothing less. A kind of religion that's got a chip on its shoulder. The kind of religion that uh, fears this new teacher, Jesus Christ. The kind of religion that has a watchword of fearfulness or arrogance. Of course, lots of questions come into your mind if you start thinking. You think to yourself, well, as far as I know, you can't commit adultery on your own, so where's the man? And did they allow this man to escape? Because their primary aim was obviously to trap Jesus. Also, was it necessary to bring this woman out into the open to deal with this? In fact, it wasn't. But they did it to inflict maximum humiliation on her and maximum publicity for their cause. Great religion. But it happens, doesn't it? The third word is flawed. She got caught, but not caught enough. You see, being caught in the act of adultery wasn't sufficient evidence. You required in Jewish law two witnesses. Also, if by the law she was to be stoned, it was only in the context of being a betrothed virgin, in other words, a fiancé in our terms, and if she had been sexually unfaithful to her fiancé. question is, did she fit that category? Moreover, did the law in Leviticus, when you look up these chapters, chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 22, did the law not also require the other party to be stoned? So it seems to me what's happening here is this, this religion is not only judgmental and provocative, but it's flawed. It's twisting its own laws to suit the particular purpose in hand. Now maybe this is your whole idea of religion. 
Maybe what I'm saying is how you've understood religion all along. And this is how you see Christianity as a very judgmental religion, as a very provocative religion, bringing people out into the open, making them to confess their sins. A very flawed religion because sometimes it appears that if preachers like me twist things, manipulate people. I don't know. Let me give you a, another word. Inadequate. She got caught in a single act of sin. But there was no hope offered for her sinful nature. She was just hammered. It's like one strike and you're out. This is religion without answers for the human heart. Without any means of getting rid of those sins. Of saving her. Without any pardon for that crippling guilt inside her. My fifth word and last word to describe this profile of religion here is hypocritical. She got caught by those who gave the impression they were not sinners. They had set Jesus up. If he had said to them to stone her, he would have been in conflict with the Romans who did not allow the Jews to carry out death sentence. If he did not stone her, he was in conflict with the Jews for not supporting the law. They were clever. But his answer in verse 7 of this chapter, when they kept on questioning, he says, if any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. It's incredibly perceptive, profound. He refers to stoning in his comment. So he can't be accused of forfeiting the law. And then he uses the phrase without sin. It doesn't mean without this sin. It means without any sin. And they were conscience stricken. The older ones who knew their hearts much better than the young, moved away first. They condemned the sins of others, but were sinners themselves. And Jesus confronts such blatant religious hypocrisy. Because only Jesus could. Because only Jesus had no sin. He was sinless. That's why he could eventually die for sinners and take our place. So what's this about dealing with people then? The Jesus way. Well, think of it like this. In this story, there is an institutional force bearing down on this one person. It's unreasonable, it's inhumane. The person is exploited and crushed by this institutional force. Now when we're dealing with people, 
There are hundreds and millions of people who it's important to see in their lives is there an institutional force that is causing them to be the way they are or to be in the situation they are in or to respond to this Christian stuff in a hostile way. Now this institutional force that I'm talking about may well be religion, may well be the whole idea of Christianity as an institutional force. It may well be the church. You want nothing to do with Christianity because of the institutional force that you perceive is in front of you. It could also be work. It could also be past associations that you may have to deal with. It could also be social conventions and your social life. There's some kind of institutional force hindering you from thinking about Jesus correctly. And it may just be the church. In all its laws, and rules and regulations as you see them. So has an institutional force of any kind hindered you from taking seriously the Lord Jesus Christ as a person, as a Savior, and as the Lord and King of your life? And will you let that institutional force, be it religion or the church, take your soul away from the one who loves your soul more than anyone else will ever do? Yes, there are hypocrites. Yes, religion provokes. Yes, there are all these variations and strands. But look at Jesus. He confronts it as only He can. Before leaving that, let me ask you, those who are Christians here, are you contributing to an institutional force on other people's lives that's actually making it more difficult for those people to take Jesus seriously. The gospel is its own barrier. In other words, people have to deal with their sinfulness. They have to realize that they have to come to a Christ who died upon a cross. People don't need the barriers we make that are not that one gospel barrier. Dealing with people, try to understand, ascertain that the one you're praying for, even the one you're sitting beside tonight, even the one you've brought tonight, there may be some kind of institutional force or institutional thinking in their minds that's stopping them believing in the Lord that you love. And remember that when you deal with them and when you care for them, and when you talk with them. 
A second theme throughout this story is human value. You see, as, as we note, the religious people humiliate her. She's of little worth. She's basically a piece of evidence. But by contrast, the Lord Jesus treats her with great dignity. Her life situation, this hard religion, had taken and stripped that from her. But the Lord Jesus, notice what he says to her woman, this wonderful, dignified phrase. The same phrase that he uses to speak to his mother at the time of the cross. She's alone, she's exploited, she's guilty. But she's also precious. And she's also loved. And she's also important. She's made in the image of God, albeit marred. She's a single human being of infinite worth. Over the past days, over this past week, suicide bombers have destroyed many lives of infinite worth in Jerusalem, Saudi Arabia, Morocco, and perhaps naively, and maybe I don't seriously go out enough, but perhaps naively I still ask, why is life so cheap and causes so important? Why has humanity failed to value the uniqueness, the preciousness, and the wonder of a single human being and ordered our lives accordingly? Why do we still talk about so many American lives being lost? So many British lives being lost? Is each person not simply, no more, no less, a human being of equal value made in the image of God and in need of eternal salvation? When we deal with people, before each of us there is a life of infinite worth, a life that God has created. hard-nosed religion retreats in this story and she's left alone with Jesus. It doesn't seem to me in the text that she feels uncomfortable. She is valued as a person. I'm sure she senses from the presence of Christ and the eyes of Christ and the demeanor of Christ as he stands and straightens himself that she's been treated with great dignity and great understanding. When we deal with one another, it's important to hold in mind the infinite value of that person. Whatever their gender, whatever their sexual ethics, whatever their view on religion, whatever their place in the local community, what a difference it would make when you look into the eyes of each other and you consciously and deliberately say, until it becomes part of your being, this person in front of me is of infinite worth. They are precious. They are unique. 
Do you realize that? Do you realize tonight as you sit, maybe feeling very alone, wondering why you ever came here anyway, how important you are and that God places on your life something so special that Jesus died for you. And do you sense those of us who are Christians here, do others sense we value them as human beings? For example, do someone, someone you brought tonight or a number of people you may have brought here who sit with you in this guest service by your invitation, do they sense from you that you care about them as human beings and not only because they are unconverted but because you really care and you like them and you care about their souls and their lives and it's not just a guest service you're praying very deeply it's their service The third theme is that there's something happening in this story which we could describe as divine mystery. Jesus alone knows what he wrote in the ground that day. Scholars have tried to dig out and imagine and speculate. He alone knows why he wrote it. Some people say it was a delaying tactic. He didn't quite know what to do. We all know delaying tactics of trying to delay answers to questions that we may be asked in tutorials or wherever. All kinds of ways of getting around of things when we don't really know the answer but we really don't want to admit we don't know the answer. I don't think it was that at all. Some people say that he was being influenced by the Roman magistrates whose uh, practice it was when they passed sentence on someone was first of all to write it on the ground and then pronounce it. The question is, what sentence would he have been writing on the ground? Was it against the woman? I don't think so. Was it against the hypocrites? Whatever is clear here is that it introduces an element into this story which has no explanation. And I think that's important. It's pointing to communication. Jesus communicates through what he does, but he doesn't tell us what he does. Or certainly, John doesn't. In other words, there's something in his dealings here with this whole scene that we're not privy to. There's an element, a component of divine mystery. Thus, we can never say we fully understand the story. There's something here that has no human explanation. There is no possibility of us reaching it. So what about dealing with people then? As we think about them as those very priceless creations of God. Well, divine mystery... 
there's something going on in each one of our lives at this minute that the rest of us don't know anything about. It can't be calculated. Imagine the conscience of those leaders as they walked away. Imagine the apprehension of being left alone with Jesus, perhaps. Imagine the sense of joy and wonder when he says, I don't condemn you either. Romans, Paul wrote, There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of spirit and life set me free from the law of death and sin. Of course, the prime example in the Bible of sort of mysterious goings-on is in the life of Job, chapter 1, where you have this divine cosmic interaction between God and Satan and Job going about his life. When we deal with people, when we talk to them about the Lord Jesus, the Lord may be doing things in their lives that we'll never see, never understand, and never know about. There's a spiritual reality, isn't there, beyond what we can see, beyond what we can understand. There's an element in people's lives of mystery as God deals with them. Unseen struggles that people go through that make them speak and act or be hostile to what we say. We never know the whole picture. Do you struggle with this Christianity stuff? Maybe you struggle in your head with it. Maybe you struggle in your heart with it. Maybe you struggle in your will with it. You want it to work. But there are struggles, there are battles inside you. Some of them may be intellectual. Some of them may be moral. You've got to understand this as we deal with people. On the other hand, sometimes... The whole idea of Jesus in a situation, working something hidden, it makes people feel uneasy. Sometimes this can happen. A sense of divine mystery makes people feel very edgy. Perhaps you're one of those people. You have to know how it works to be confident. But the problem with Christianity is that you never will. The problem with Christianity is that there are gaps and seams in the narrative, in the story here, which are designed deliberately to let God be God and Jesus be Jesus. And looking at Christianity from a purely rational, intellectual point of view, you will discover very soon in that journey, it may be a worthy journey, it may be a journey you need to make, but you will discover at some point or another a gap or a space where God wants to be God and Jesus wants to be Jesus and He wants you. It frees us when we believe in divine mystery, when we are feeling comfortable with the fact that everything can't be explained, there is a, there's a kind of release, there's a kind of, it frees us from a limited rationalism. We've been educated, many people in this church educated to a very high degree. 
educated through analytical systems, educated through thinking in logical, rational ways. If only truth was objective, we say. But truth here is subjective. It's around a person. A person we don't even fully understand. A person in which the church calls us to believe. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard rejected the idea that truth was objective and can be attained by rational inquiry. He wrote in his journal in 1835, the thing to understand myself, to see what God wishes me to do, the thing is to find a truth which is true for me. To find the idea for which I can live and die. What would be the use of discovering so-called objective truth? What good would it be to me to be able to explain the meaning of Christianity if it had no deeper significance for me in my life? What good it would do me if truth stood before me cold and naked, not caring and producing in me a shudder of fear rather than a trusting devotion. When you come to a service like this one, you hit the truth is Jesus. She did. And the fourth theme is that of possible forgiveness. Remember, this is a story about a woman who needs to get rid of her sins. How can she do this? Now they're on their own, just Jesus and her. Religion has no answer. I think here three foundational truths come into play. Three things that Christianity brings into focus for us. First of all, Jesus does not come to condemn her, but to save her. He doesn't ask her if she's guilty. Both of them know she is. And the teacher's been her law. And, of course, it had been graphically demonstrated that no one is without sin when all those guys moved off. Jesus has a couple of questions. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? I think he asks these. He wants to signal the stark contrast between himself and this cold religion. And I hope whatever happens in your life tonight, that that's what you see too. That cold religion is not what's offered here, but personal forgiveness. Their mission is to condemn. His mission is to save. That wonderful verse in John, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. 
But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Read it very carefully. The idea of condemned already. You meet so many people and they think they're sitting on some kind of neutral ground. As if this pulpit were the neutral ground and this step was one way and this step was another way and Jesus was over here and and light was over here and darkness was over here and somehow they're standing in between. And they feel they've got forever to decide which way to go. But there is no neutral ground in Christianity. We're in the dark until we find the light. He didn't come to condemn you. He didn't come to say to you tonight, as you sit there and feel that perhaps this sermon's too near the bone for you in particular. He didn't come to condemn you. You may be sleeping with someone you shouldn't be. But he's come to save you and to change your heart and life. The second great truth is that Jesus does not minimize her sin, but he offers her forgiveness on the merit of his coming sacrifice. He would die on the cross for this woman. He would die on the cross for these religious hypocrites. And he would die on the cross for all of us, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His blood, without the shedding of that blood, there is no forgiveness. It is in the death of Christ that justice is found, that forgiveness is found. Forgiveness presupposes a sinfulness. The sinfulness presupposes that God is holy and that God is perfect and that God has plans for you. Those plans are interrupted by sinfulness which is disobedience against that God which brings His wrath because the cross is not about the wrath of humanity on Jesus. The cross is about the wrath of God on Jesus for the sake of humanity. He takes your place as a substitute. Instead of you, He dies, that you might live. And He was about to do that for her. And so He forgives her on that merit. Forgiveness is found in Him. Thirdly, that foundational truth that Jesus does not bring forgiveness as an end in itself, but as the beginning of a new life. His words, go now and leave your life of sin, they demand and they anticipate a moral and lifestyle change. So tonight as God touches your life and God says to you, you need that forgiveness that man's talking about. You need to be cleansed and you need to start again. But when you start again, God says to you, go now and sin no more. Don't live that old life, live the new life in me. You need to discover that new life. You need to get into these groups in the church and learn about that new life.
but you also need to deal with moral compromises and difficulties and sinfulness in your own life. So it may mean tonight a complete reversal of how you live. So what about this dealing with people then? The Jesus way. Well, when we look into that person's eyes, and we remember maybe the one point that they are of infinite worth. How will we look? The possibility, possibility of forgiveness, the possibility that that one life can be changed around, the possibility that they would stop sleeping with people that they shouldn't be sleeping with, the possibility that their moral life will change, the possibility that they'll stop lying and cheating, the possibility that they'll be reformed, the possibility of all kinds of things, the great potential in Christ. We often look at people and shake our heads. We should look at people and shake our hearts and shake ourselves. Here's a woman who now has the possibility of extending dignity to others. She was treated like dirt. Now she has been given a sense of worth. It's all different now. She has the possibility of sharing the great joy of being forgiven. And that wonderful time when a person looks in your eyes and says, last night, this morning, I became a Christian. I was forgiven. And their eyes well up because their heart has changed. And you never thought it would happen to you. She's got the possibility of taking her new lifestyle into the community and changing other people. She's even got the possibility of going back out there and finding the man she was sleeping with and tell him about what Jesus did. Cultivate a mindset of possibilities when you think about people. Some may be saying tonight, I've never been caught in the act, but I feel very guilty here. And can I experience this kind of forgiveness? Can I get a new beginning? Yes. Jesus waits. And bring your heart and life and tell them about yourself. Tell them about your sinfulness and your fears. Tell them anything that's on your heart. Tell them you need Him. Tell him he died for you. He knows that. But he'd love you to say that to him because you really do believe it tonight. Is there a force stopping you? Religion? Church? Is there something you're contributing to that's stopping other people? Do you realize how important you are 
And do you Christians realize that people aren't objects to convert? They're people. They snore like you do. They sweat like you do. They need food like you do. They need maybe you to hug them. Or to cry with them. Or to laugh with them. Or to go somewhere with them. But they need the Lord most of all. Do you struggle with this Christianity stuff? It's maybe because you're looking for answers to everything. There aren't any answers to everything. You hit divine mystery. The cross is divine mystery. I don't believe, I don't understand all about how Jesus died for me. Theologically, I'm beginning to catch on. But I tell you this, I believe it with all my heart. And it's something gloriously mysterious. Don't let your rational desires stop you from receiving the person of the Lord Jesus in your life. Much of Christianity is very rational. But there comes a point where you have simply got to believe. And what about this possibility? The possibility that tonight you could find that too. And the possibility of being absolutely thrilled with the vast potential in other people's lives. Look at each other differently as you leave. And remember this. This story is about being caught in the act. Just one sin. But the thing you have to consider as we end is every sin is caught in the act. Because God sees everything every heart but he also hears every sincere prayer and he wants in his son Jesus to say to you neither do I condemn you go now and leave your life of sin together, shall we?